Good afternoon. Please welcome Columbia University President Lee C. Bollinger. This town hall with Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, moderated by Charlie Rose, is a wonderful event for Columbia, and we're very, very proud to host it. And I must say, it's a very special and, I suspect, deeply memorable occasion for our students, the primary audience that drew all of our guests here today. Warren, Bill, and Charlie are friends of this university and of mine personally, and in the case of Warren Buffett, an alumnus. They are people of enormous talent, accomplishment, and success. And as much as anyone alive at this moment, they embrace and act on the deep sense of responsibility that good fortune creates. If you had to choose people to represent the best of a generation or even a century, you could not do better than these individuals. Charlie Rose demonstrates how the art of conversation can educate and illuminate. Bill Gates succeeded in creating from scratch a business giant that now takes that success and searches the world looking for ways to make humanity meaningfully better off. And Warren Buffett is a one-of-a-kind investment genius, but even more importantly, he grasps a complex world better than almost anyone else and then combines that singular talent with an uncanny capacity for condensing insight and wisdom into memorable utterances at the level of a Will Rogers or a Mark Twain. We are admiring and grateful for their presence today. Thank you very much. Thank you for coming. Uh, thank you, President Bollinger, and also to Columbia for, for hosting this. Um, and we also very much appreciate the people who are here in Alfred Learner Hall. And we want to welcome everyone viewing on Facebook Live. Um, these two guys sitting next to me I've known for a long time. I've probably done more interviews with the two of you than anyone else. I, I, I certainly know that I always came away, one, having fun, and two, learning something. And my guess is so will you this afternoon. They represent two different generations, but they represent a kind of essential friendship. Uh, as Bill has said, it was instantaneous uh, when they first met that they knew they would be great friends. Um, I should also say to you that they have been here um, before. This was, I think, in 2009, was it? Sounds right. Do you remember, Bill? Yep. 2009. And what was that event called? <laughs> Making America great, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Keeping America great. Keeping America. We're Keep entitled it. to a royalty. <laughs> <laughs> 
Keeping America Great in 2009. Um, later, we, we, I'll be here talking for just a few minutes with them, but this is an opportunity for all of you to participate. There'll be people going around with microphones. I, I ask you, uh, in the interest of everybody here, uh, we don't need speeches, we need curiosity. <laughs> we need people uh, to really think about what they're saying, think about what you think, and in the most precise way you can, ask a question so that as many people as possible will have a chance to be involved, uh, will have a considerable amount of time you know, to talk about anything, and, and certainly everything from uh, your curiosity about what they know, which is considerable, uh, but also the world around you, because they know a lot about that, too. But I want to go back to the idea of this friendship, Warren. Uh, what is it that you two share? What makes this friendship so satisfying for both of you? Well, I think we both certainly share a curiosity about the world, and we come from two different but related worlds. Uh, so we had, I think we probably spent about 10 hours of this one-hour visit that Bill was scheduled on July 5th, 1991. <laughs> His mother had to talk him into it. And uh, uh, we weren't halfway, I mean, we'd gotten no place in terms of our eventual agenda just in, in that time. In fact, the, the governor of Washington came by and Bill's dad had to come into the bedroom and pull us out of it. We didn't want to, <laughs> he was a little embarrassed we were talking about. It's, well, we have fun to start with. Right? I mean, that, uh, every relationship should have a lot of fun in it. And, and, we, we, we find the world in just such an interesting place. So we like to compare notes on it. When we have compare notes, we have a lot of fun doing it. Part of the time, as I remember the conversation, by the way, there's a remarkable documentary about Warren, which is on HBO. Uh, I think it premieres on January Monday. 30th, yeah. on Monday. Yeah. Uh, you should take time to take a look at it. Uh, Bill's involved in that, and, and you will see, in a sense, it's called, I think, Becoming Warren Buffett. Yeah, that's what it's called. Because <laughs> took me 86 years, but I got there. <laughs> You're doing well on it, though, aren't you? Well, so far, yeah. <laughs> but best is yet to come. <laughs> One of the things that happened tonight, Bill, was that I guess your dad uh, at the dinner said, you know, what is it you, what's been the most important quality for you? And you found out that you and Warren had the same word. Yeah, I think curiosity, uh, which Warren mentioned, is... A, an amazing thing where you try and predict what's going to happen and then uh, when it doesn't you sort of think well uh, you know that uh, drug didn't get invented that stock didn't go up that uh, approach wasn't popular what's what is it about my model of the world that's wrong you know who could I talk to what could I read and and the things that have happened since 1991 uh, mostly good things yeah. uh, have been amazing and just, you know, so much fun to talk about. Uh, you know, so, you know, it, we read the news and we think, God, what did Warren think yeah. about that? You both are readers. You both, you read all the time, all day, Warren. Bill, uh, you're read, a reader. You also do a lot of sort of courses online as well. I mean, what does that have done? What has that done for your life, the sense of constantly learning? Well, Go ahead, Bill. It's an incredible time to be a learner. I remember when I was young, you know, I had the World Book, which is one of Warren's products, yeah. uh, and it was very good. But, you know, I always felt like, God, I, I, I want to get into this in more depth. I want to understand it better. Today, the videos that are online and the yeah. courses that you can buy with the very best professors, it's phenomenal. You know, take a subject like weather or climate change. 
you know, or what's going on in economics, what's known, what's not known. Now with the foundation, a lot of what I need to learn is about biology, making vaccines and uh, what's going on with these, these various diseases. This is a, a phenomenal time to be a curious uh, person. The information that's out there, you know, I have a, my, my biggest problem is that I stay up too late because I'm reading and then I'm a little bit tired the next day. Uh, the other thing that, that you share other than reading is optimism. Uh, you believe in America. Absolutely. You, know, you have said to me more than once, uh, I would give up a year of my life just to know what the next 50 is going to be like. Yeah, even the next four now. I mean, <laughs> why'd you pick four? <laughs> I don't know. Number that came to me. <laughs> the, um, uh, it is it is just fascinating what's yeah. happened just in my lifetime. You know, yeah. in, in the 86 years. I, I should mention one thing about reading. Uh, it was at the library here at Columbia yeah. that I wish I spent probably more time than any other uh, student. Uh, I, I, I lived there practically, but you know, I pulled the book out there, happened to be Who's an American, it told me something about my professor, Benjamin Graham, and then I looked up and I went to the library and I said, I want to look more, learn more about this because I learned this over here. That changed my whole life. You know, we own Geico now uh, because of, uh, of that librarian directing me to some other book and then following through on that. It's the chance, I, I, I read about one-fifth the pace the bill does, but I still spend five or six hours a day reading. I mean, it just, you can learn so much. I particularly love biography, just, uh, you know, to be able to live the lives of these people that have been so, see them so extraordinary, the lessons and the, you know, the discouragements they face, just everything about it. So I just, I, you can't get enough of reading. It, uh, what surprises you most about Bill? Uh, that's an interesting question. I guess what really surprised me is initially, we just found so many things to connect on. But, uh, uh, he did try to sell me a computer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, that was, that's probably the only sale he didn't make, although the computer changed my life for the better in a big way subsequently. But, uh, well, he, he, he just had the same curiosity. Yeah. That, uh, and the other word you have used is focus. Well, the focus is no question mm -hmm. about it. I mean, he, yeah. both of us, got to where we are in a big, big way because of focus. Bill, what surprised you about Warren? I was so amazed that he comes to investing with this broad model of the world. So one of the first questions he asked me was, hey, Microsoft's a small company, IBM's this huge company. Why can you do better? Why can't they uh, beat you at the software game that you're playing? And I, I always... You know, you know, every day I was thinking about, okay, what, what advantage do we have? What do we do? But nobody ever asked me that question. And we talked about the economics of software, which is a you know, very uh, different and special thing. And he could relate it to things that he'd seen. And, you know, I didn't understand banking, why some get ahead and some don't. And so he was able to put that in very uh, clear terms. And so I, I found somebody whose model was rich enough that it, it helped me understand things that I really wanted to know, and we could laugh about things that were a surprise to us. I'd say his humility and his sense of humor really stood out in this incredible way. I mean, he enjoys what he does, and he shares that with other people. And even 
you know, when I ask questions that are pretty naive that he's probably been asked 50 no, times, he's very nice about, well, it took me a long time to figure this out, Bill, but here's how it works. <laughs> I, I tried Bill out with some non-transitive dice. And I read about them in Scientific American or someplace. And there are only two people in the world in the history of these dice that actually figured it out while I was trying to take their money from them. And one was the leading symbolic logician in the world, and the other was a drunk who didn't really know any better and asked the wrong question. But Bill said, wait a second, you choose first, and the game was over. <laughs> uh, you, you taught him, not you didn't teach him, but you brought him into a great appreciation of bridge. Yeah, he'd play bridge, but uh, the family is very big on games. His family was very, very big on games, and and uh, and so we, we we played bridge together, and we played in China, going down the great rivers when we were supposed to be looking at the scenery. We but we had a good time playing bridge. <laughs> All right, we've got a lot of questions. We want to talk from the audience. Somebody, we want to start up in the up in the balcony, so we so you know we haven't forgotten you. Uh, it's hard to see, uh, but is there a number there that has a question? Okay, start it wherever it is. Yes, number six. Uh, thank both of you guys for being here today. Uh, my question is in regards to public health and vaccinations. Um, given our current private, uh, president's publicly stated stance against the use of vaccinations, both in this country and abroad, how would you recommend that we, as students and future leaders in the health sciences, best to allocate our resources to most effectively resist his alternative fact political philosophy in regards to domestic and global public health. Thank you. Well, you, Bill? That's a good place to start. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the facts about vaccines are very clear and very strong, which is both uh, that they're safe and that the vaccine schedule has been designed uh, to reduce disease and you know, the more parents that adhere to it, the more not only their children be protected, but you have some kids who are immune deficient. And so unless the kids around them are protected, then it puts those kids at risk. And there are diseases like measles or pertussis that all it takes is a small cluster, and then mostly those diseases would be coming in from overseas, but you can get infection. And in, in some European countries, you've had deaths because uh, the kids weren't vaccinated. I don't think the U.S. government uh, is going to come out with any negative statements. There may be a commission, and fortunately, if you look at the facts, the facts are quite unequivocal. Uh, we certainly are speaking out in favor of vaccines, so I, I, uh, you know, I'm a little surprised that we have to stick up for them, but it's true in every country uh, that you get these rumors, and particularly in today's media, those rumors can get out and ahead of the facts because the rumors are sort of more salacious or, uh, you know, contrary to what you've been told type things. Uh, here, I'm sure we'll have a chance, if necessary, to go through the facts again and, and get a clear positive message from the government. And the risk is, if vaccines somehow people are scared of having vaccines, the risk is? Well, there, uh, we're engaged right now in polio eradication. And the only way that succeeds is to get 95% of the kids to have these vaccines. And there we found, we ran into a form of anti-vaccine sentiment that's even worse uh, than US rumors. And that is that two terrorist groups, one in Nigeria, Boko Haram, and another one in Pakistan, Afghanistan, the Taliban, said that vaccination was a US plot and you know would sterilize women and it was a, a very bad thing. And 
they took the women who were going out to the children's houses and giving these oral drops, oral polio vaccine, and actually killed a number of them. And so those negative rumors, the only reason we still have polio today that we're not done is because of that part of Nigeria that Boko Haram's caused unrest in the uh, border areas, uh, including Baluchistan in Pakistan, where there have been these anti-vaccine sentiments. So, you know, our risk is, is, is simply those negative things. So it's not just in rich countries that we run into this. It absolutely is causes deaths if parents don't know bring your kids in and, and get them fully vaccinated. And your drive to eradicate polio is to show that you can do it. Well, it'll be, it started in 1988 when it already had been eradicated in the Americas. So these were the, first, the U.S. in the 60s, the rest of the Americas in the 70s, showed that it could be done. And so in 1988, uh, well before our foundation was involved, uh, Rotary and a number of other organizations said, let's get rid of this. And it's been harder than was expected just because of these, these sentiments. You know, here we are in 2016, uh, 17, last year, less than 50 cases. So we are very, very close. In fact, there's so few cases now, the way that we track where the virus is, is we go and look at sewage samples and we see, because a lot of kids uh, get infected and pass along without getting paralyzed. And so it's only through these sewage samples we know that there's still about four places in Pakistan and Afghanistan and, and one place in Nigeria that we, we haven't gotten there yet. All right, let's see the next question. Uh, I got to see a card. Number one. Thank you both so much for being here. My question, again, sorry, is uh, a little bit on the political spectrum. I was wondering what you're both most hopeful about in this new political environment we have, and also what you're both most worried about. You want to take hope or worried, Martin? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm confident that America will move ahead. It's been, you know, from the time I was born until now, the real GDP per capita of this country has gone up six for one. I mean, nobody ever dreamt that would be possible. And, and when you look at what's happened in this country over 240 years, you know, it, it, it's an absolute miracle. When I went to Columbia Business School in September 1950, one woman in the class. I mean, the, this country moves forward, and uh, you can't stop it. So I'm, I'm enormously up. I, I say the luckiest person born in the history of the world is the baby being born today in this country. And we will go and, you know, everybody, half the country always is going to be somewhat unhappy, or close to half about the last election. But uh, I grew up in a household uh, in the late 1930s. My dad was very Republican. We, my sisters and I didn't get dessert unless we said something bad about Roosevelt. I mean, it was just, it was, re <laughs> it was required. <laughs> and I heard all these apocalyptic views about after his third term, there'll be no more elections. I've been hearing that all my life. And, you know, year after year after year with occasional hiccups and, and an occasional seizure like we had in 2008 and 9. But this country, it's all profit, folks. I mean, you know, when I came in, just think of what it would have been like in 1776. Nothing here. Yeah. And now we've got... And the velocity of change Oh, it just keeps moving. Day. I mean, guys like Bill, you know, they don't quit. Yeah. You know, I mean, he, he moves on to something like polio. He mentions 50 cases in the world. There were more than 50 in the ward where I went when I was a teenager to see a friend of my sister's. And they were all in these rocking machines and everything. They were destined to a terrible, terrible 
life. And, and there was just one ward in Omaha. And, and now that's, you know, that's the yearly total, thanks initially to, as well as currently, to, to Rotary and some, but people kept working on it. This world moves forward. And it's been doing, uh, I bought my first stock when I was 11 in April of 1942. The Dow was 100. If you haven't looked, it's 20,000. Something good must have happened in between. <laughs> and it's going to keep happening, folks. <laughs> Bill, I know you share the optimism. What about concerns? Well, the optimism uh, is partly that I think American innovation is strong. Uh, you know, support for research is by and large bipartisan. And so whether it's health breakthroughs or even energy breakthroughs, I think, you know, every year that goes by, we're going to have more of those things. Now, this administration is new enough. We don't know how their budget priorities will come out. You know, there are things like foreign aid, uh, which is a small part of the budget, about 30 billion a year, but that means the U.S. is the biggest, that every time there's new leadership, we have to go in and articulate uh, the benefits, it's well spent, it's not the image that people have in the past. And so right now, I think there's a lot of intensity uh, to make sure we get that message out and get both in terms of the executive branch and the Congress to maintain amazing things like the president's malaria initiative or PEPFAR, which is an HIV thing. These things started under President Bush. And so our foundations had a great working relationship with Democratic and Republican administrations. Most people wouldn't realize that US foreign aid as a percentage of the economy, which is generally how it's measured, reached its low point in 1999 uh, under the Clinton administration. Now, I'm not saying it was the administration. It was a mix of the administration and the Congress. Uh, then, uh, during those Bush years, it went up uh, fairly substantially. Now, the economy helped with that. But these initiatives were really amazing. And you know, I'm hopeful that maintaining or even growing uh, these initiatives will be a priority when there's a lot of talk about tax cuts and different spending activities. And so it is a bit up in the air uh, during these months ahead. And you've often made the point that no matter how big the private contributions are, sometimes in terms of tier, sheer scale, you need a government Yeah, somebody asked me today, you know, if PEPFAR, which is this AIDS program, uh, was canceled, wouldn't private philanthropy make up for it? Well, PEPFAR is over $5 billion a year. That is this one aid program, which is a phenomenal thing that's saved uh, over 10 million lives. That's larger than our foundation, which is uh, the, the largest in the world. So there's no possibility the government sector, US, UK, other European donors, uh, that's $130 billion a year in total that's uplifting these poor countries in health and education. And if we lose the consensus around that, if, if people draw inward too much, the, we will hurt progress and there will be millions of lives lost because of it. All right. And one thing that might be yeah. mentioned, Charlie, is that the difference between now and 60 or 70 years ago in the ability of really bright people, really innovative, really energetic people to get financed to do things is, is just dramatically better than, than it was at that time. So now, if you've got good ideas, and there's good ideas right in this crowd, and you've got energy, it's far easier to get financed to move forward those ideas than you could 50 or 60 years is ago. Is that because of the internet or crowdsourcing? Of what is it? It's just lots more capital lots around more capital. and people more optimistic yeah. about it. 
people are very optimistic about and, business. And, but better ways to connect the two, yeah, the capital and those absolutely. and the it's ideas. It's dramatic. It's dramatic. And, and the willingness to take risk. Uh, you know, the first venture capital stuff is in the 1960s, and it's tiny. Uh, Microsoft, when we were uh, taking outside investment, we took a, uh, at a valuation of $20 million, we took a million dollars for 5% of the company. I'll do it retroactively, folks. <laughs> uh, and, uh, you had your chance. You had your we, chance. We, we, we never spent the money. That is, our business was profitable enough. We really didn't need to do that, but we wanted people on our board to give us advice. And uh, there's an episode of Silicon Valley where all these venture capitalists are, are courting this guy. And that really reminded me of what it was like. By that time, which was 1984, there were dozens of venture capitalists. And that's something that other countries have tried to duplicate. And they have uh, in small part, but not nearly as well. This, this willingness to take risk, the idea that if you have a failure, it's not a mark of shame that, hey, what's your next startup going to be? You heard his secret, folks. He gets his ideas from Silicon Valley. Be sure. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, cards. Let's see where the cards are. Okay, number three, take the card right there. So you started this talk um, about how you'd able to make a model and it won't accurately predict what happens. And on the other side of the coin, I was wondering what happens when you create such well-developed predictive technology and what are the ramifications and implications of that outcome? Well, I don't think our predictive technology uh, you know, it's going to be like an oracle. Warren's nickname is the Oracle of Omaha. Uh, but, you know, the, the percentage of times y you can predict things like macroeconomics because they involve uh, emotional sentiment. You know, we're a long ways away from that. The biggest modeling thing I'm involved in is a group that models diseases. So we look at HIV or tuberculosis and understand, okay, what do we have to do in terms of diagnosis and drugs to get these things down? Once we finish polio, we'll go on and our next big challenge, which will take decades, but I expect will be done in my lifetime, is malaria eradication. So these models aren't nearly at the point where they can take human sentiment into consideration. You know, the field of economics, uh, a very basic question about what we should have done differently before the financial crisis, uh, there really is no consensus, whether it's with the public or inside the profession of economists. They, they agree that some of the emergency treatment we did uh, was necessary and important, and you know, I wish that was, was better understood. But the, in terms of the root causes, it's actually a little disconcerting how little our models or understanding uh, explain how that imbalance got so extreme. All right. Well, Number two. Hi, um, my name is Eugenia. I'm in the engineering school here at Columbia. And I wanted to ask, um, you were talking about that you love reading. I wanted to ask if you have a particular book that it changed your life, like the way you think about things. And I also wanted to ask, um, what is the thing that you um, admire the most about each other? Like you, Bill, about Warren and the other way around. Thank you. They sort of touched on the, on the second question, but go ahead, they may want to add to it. Books, though, first. Changed your life. Well, a book did change my life, and it was by a fellow who taught here at Columbia, Benjamin Graham, and I read the book when I was 19 called The Intelligent Investor, and I, 
I had been interested in investments since I was maybe seven or eight, but I'd never, and I'd read every book in the public, almost public library by the time I was 11. So why was, do you think you were interested in investing when you were seven or eight? <laughs> because I was too dumb to get interested at four. <laughs> the, my dad, my dad had a very small investment firm, and I would just get out. I read all the books that he had there, you know, yeah. waiting to go to lunch or whatever it might be. And then I went over to the public library and read them all. And, and it, it, it just was a fascinating subject to me. And and but I didn't have any. I, I knew what everybody thought and all of that at, at an early age. But what Graham wrote made sense. I just happened to pick that book up at a bookstore in Lincoln, Nebraska. And but but to investing per se, uh, did. Is there something about your core competence that made investing the perfect place for you to be? Yeah, I certainly wasn't a pro football player. <laughs> I, mean, I, I mean, I looked, it was a question of zeroing out all the other incompetencies, you know, and I was left with one thing, you know. <laughs> the, uh, uh, no, I, Just the I, allocation I, of it, capital. It, 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 I was actually wired in a way that was, I, this would be something I would be good no, at. Well, so what, wired in what way? I... I can't tell you precisely, but I, I, I've got the right temperament for it, which is much hey. more important than IQ. If you've got more than 120 points of IQ, sell, sell the rest to somebody else. You don't need it in investments, but, but you do need the right temperament. You do, it. You, you do have to be able to think for yourself. And getting back to you know, the, the uh, earlier question, the first question I ask myself when I look at a business is, you know, is it important and easy what I can determine about this business? Yeah. And a lot of them don't make it. Now, Bill is looking for hard questions that, that, that plague society and where intellect and money may make a difference. They may not for a while, and, uh, but he, he's taking on the tough things. I take, my job is to find easy things. I'm looking for one-foot bars to step over, you know, rather than eight-foot bars to jump over, you know. <laughs> and, but that's not irrational if you're, yeah. if you're looking at the investment universe. But reading is key. On the, biography, uh, on the, on the book thing, I, the, I will tell you a wonderful book to read. Uh, uh, I can tell you a number of them. Intelligent investor, obviously, if you're in the investment field. But Catherine Graham's uh, autobiography uh, is a marvelous book, and it's absolutely honest, told by an incredible woman who had an incredible life and then wrote honestly okay, about but, 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 and, and someone who you knew very well yeah, and invested sure. with, and, and she was a bit reluctant and had to be assured, yeah. you know, that she you, was afraid you had, of me, actually. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but what makes that book? So it's, much. It, it's just, it is such a broad range of human experience, honestly told. I mean, you couldn't have, a, nobody in Hollywood could write a, uh, you know, a, a, a scenario that she lived through. And, and just to see that world develop, how she reacted to it and everything. I, you can learn so much. My partner, Charlie Munger, just loves Ben Franklin. You know, I mean, yeah. he, I mean, you know, he could, it, it, you can learn from other people and, and their mistakes, and, and I find biography is my favorite. Part of the reason you love biographies. Pardon me? Part of the reason you love biographies. Yeah. Okay. Where is a card? Uh, right here. Just come here. I'm, I'm having a hard time seeing the card so that, right here, see the, where the hands are raised. My name is Chisima. I'm a senior here at the college. I'm also a Gates Millennium Scholar with my family over here. Um, so I'd like to ask, so what both of you do involves a lot of risk. And sometimes you have to face the fear of failure with that risk. So I'm asking, 
How did you overcome that fear and what steps did you take to do that? Well, I think I was very lucky that uh, when I was in high school, the computer was brought in there and I developed a fascination for it and became kind of fanatical about it. So that, you know, I didn't view it as risky. I viewed it as this kind of fun hobby. Even when I went to college, which I didn't finish, but I, I spent time uh, up in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, the, I wasn't sure that would be my life's work. Now, as the chip came along and made it mainstream, it became very obvious that something dramatic uh, was going to happen. And so my, my passion, my hobby, and the area I could start this company right at the beginning of the, the revolution, that coincided in a nice way. And I never felt it was risky. I, I, you know, if Microsoft had failed, I didn't have kids or anything. I could go back to school and, uh, you know, finish my degree and, you know, go get a job somewhere. I was very risk averse in, in running the company. I always made sure we had enough money in the bank to pay everybody for at least a year if nobody paid us at all. Because this idea, I was hiring people who had kids and families and they were moving to work there. And here I was, you know, 19, 20 years old and sort of telling these people I'd be paying their salaries. So, I, I was actually very conservative on a financial point of view, and one of the few arguments I had with Steve Ballmer, who came in and played a phenomenal role in the success of the company, was how many people could he hire, because uh, I was trying to be so conservative. But I let him go full speed, and uh, you know, it turns out our financial success meant that we never uh, had a conflict about that. But you know, I think it's great to be risk taking, uh, particularly when you're young, trying out different things, fields that you know, aren't very popular that you might enjoy. But I never got into a position where I, I was taking, uh, actually in any meaningful sense, I was taking a big risk. I mean, the risk for you would not to have acted because you felt the train was leaving the station. Yeah, and it was so clear uh, that you know, this was going to happen. And this was so much fun. I mean. You know, I was a fanatic. I didn't believe in weekends. I didn't believe in vacation. Uh, my mom had to negotiate whether I'd come once a week for dinner. Uh, no matter who the guest was. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. But, but Warren, you have often said you still tap dance to work Absolutely. because you can paint with your own colors. Yeah. I, I, I get, I, I'm as excited about tomorrow in terms of what going to happen as I was when I started. I was having a lot of fun when I started, but I'm having just as much fun uh, now. And, and I was, when I was here at Columbia, I, I had this terrible fear. Of, it was impossible for me to speak in public. I mean, I wasn't able to do it. I actually read an ad in the New York Times. I went down to Midtown, signed up for a course, gave the guy a check, and then stopped payment on the check. I mean, it just, I just petrified. But finally, I, and, and actually, after you get through with here, Hearing me today, maybe you'll wish I'd stayed afraid of public speaking, but that's another question. <laughs> then, when I got out to Omaha, I finally decided I just had to do it, so I gave a guy $100 in cash, and once I parted yeah. with $100 in cash, I, you know, I'd, I'd jump off the Grand Canyon to get my money's worth. So, it, it, <laughs> but it, cha it changed my life. But I would say this, don't fear failure. Almost everything that's turned out, I got turned down by Harvard. The best thing that ever happened, uh, among other some good things that happened that didn't seem good at the time, don't worry about and don't don't let it eat at your look back. Just keep going because you're going to have some things and 
Forget them. Go, go forward. <laughs> All right, we're going to go to the back of the room, right? Back there. Wherever number three is. Hi, my name is Matthew Mann. I'm a first year at Columbia Business School. Both of you had a moment where you went out on your own. And I guess my question would be, if you were to do it all over again, you're in our shoes, what industry would that be in? Where would you start your own business today? I'd do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> for one thing, I'd be a failure at anything else, probably. I mean, I'm not gonna, no, I mean, I have had, I had fun when I was in my 20s, my 30s, now I'm 86 and I'm having fun. And so I, I advise students, as much as possible, look for the job that you would take if you didn't need a job. I mean, you know, don't sleepwalk through life and don't, don't say it's all going to be great. You know, I'll, I'll do this and I'll do that. And, you know, I'm just marking time to get to be older. That, as I've told people, that's like saving up sex for your old age. I mean, it just is not a, it is, it is not a good idea. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. What are you urging them to do? I'll explain it. Just what I'm talking about. Now, it... It, it just, yeah. you really want to be doing what you love doing. And you can't necessarily find it on your first job. Right. But don't give up before you find it. Bill, you've had the unique experience, A, because of your curiosity, B, because of your involvement in, in global health, to see the impact of a lot of other areas, uh, whether it's biomedicine or whether it's, you know, a whole range of other things other than computer science. If you were going to drop out of Harvard today, uh, <laughs> which field would you be most likely attracted to? Well, I love the hard sciences, and there's some phenomenal things that people will get a chance to be part of. Uh, I'd still probably pick computer science because the work in artificial intelligence today is at a really profound level. Uh, you know, our ability not just to play games, but that is a profound milestone, the, the AlphaGo work that the DeepMind people at Google were able to achieve. And that kind of technology is in all the leading companies and a lot of the universities. With AI, creation of agents, the ability to read and understand material, it is going to be phenomenal. So anything connected with that, I think, would be an exciting lifetime career. I also think in energy, uh, we have the imperative to have energy that's reliable, cheap, and clean. And no system available today can provide that, whether it's for rich countries or for, for poor countries. And so the innovations there will be profound. And there's many paths that uh, could provide that solution. Finally, I think biology, it's the most thrilling time. You know, we are going to figure out uh, obesity, cancer, uh, even things that are very hard, like depression, because uh, the, you know, the mind is, is, is even more complicated than other uh, parts of the body. I see this through the lens of the disease of the poor, the infectious disease, where new vaccines, new drugs, we are moving faster than ever. And some of these are platform technologies, like DNA vaccines that are going to give us just that one thing will give us lots and lots of solutions. And so working in that space uh, is, is phenomenal. Now, I say this, you know, to my children, uh, and, you know, they, they may not want to do hard sciences. The, the one who's picked wants to counsel patients and, 
and be a doctor, and even more than the science piece, that relationship with patients is what grabs her. So everybody has their own taste, but in terms of big impact, those three hired science problems would be at the top for me. All right, next, right here, right next to number one. Uh, hello, uh, thank you guys for being here. Also, thank you to uh, Mr. Gates. I am also a Gates Scholar, and without your foundation, I wouldn't be here. Uh, many industrial-based communities have been severely affected with higher levels of unemployment due to the increasing utilization of automation, which ends up displacing workers. What do you believe, it, what do you believe is a possible solution to unemployment arising from automation? It's a good question. Uh, because there's a lot of talk about globalization and, and all of that, uh, and a lot of other people step forward and, and, and talk about how technology and the impact technology is having on jobs and, and the demand for new kinds of skills. Yeah, and if we were here in 1800 and conducting this, uh, and somebody would point out that uh, eventually tractors would come along and, and better fertilizer and everything, and that 80% of the people are now employed on the farm, and in a couple hundred years it's going to be 2 or 3%. And what are we going to do with all these people? Well, the answer is we release them. We, Keynes wrote something about it in something called Essays on Persuasion, he wrote in 1930, about what a more prosperous society would become like. And he actually postulated that uh, in 100 years, and we're now 87 years away from that, that there would be four to eight times as much output per capita. And, you know, he's remarkable, uh, but he, he didn't quite get how it might get distributed. But the idea of more output per capita, which is what the progress is made on productivity, that that should be harmful to society is, is crazy. I mean, the, the distribution may be a problem, but if one person could push a button and turn out everything we turn out now, is that good for the world or bad for the world? You know, you'd have to figure out how to distribute it, but, but you'd free up all kinds of possibilities for everything else. So you, every, everything should be devoted initially to getting greater productivity, but people who fall by the wayside through no fault of their own, as the goose lays more golden eggs, should still get a chance to participate in that prosperity. And that's where government comes in. Right. Bill, anything to add to that? Yeah. I, it, the, a problem of excess is a different problem than a problem of shortage. You know, if all the tractors and computers stopped working, then we would have problems of, of shortage there. Uh, and, you know, we just wouldn't have enough people to, to make the output. A problem of excess really forces us to look at the individuals affected and take those extra resources and make sure they're directed to them in terms of re-education and incomes policies. And the need for labor in terms of smaller class size, helping handicapped kids, reaching out to the elderly, the demand for labor is not at zero. Uh, if you ever get to that point, fine, you can shorten the, the work week and uh, you'll you'll be just, just fine with that. And so the this idea of taking an individual who during their generation is affected. I think there's a lot to be learned about that, a lot of thinking uh, we have to do, but the macro picture that it enables uh, is, is, is an opportunity. Number two. Also, I'm, I'm urging people at the back so you have a chance. We want to go back up to the balcony as well. Uh, so when, I see number six. We'll come to six after two, yes. Hi, my name is Sam. I go to Columbia College, and my question is, what steps do you think need to be taken in order to improve public education, particularly in uh, economically depressed areas of the United States? 
I think this is a, a super important issue because the uh, dropout rates, although they've gone down a little bit, uh, they're still very high and, and very based on income. And even kids who graduate, a lot of them don't enter college or they do enter college and they end up in these remedial courses uh, for their reading or math capabilities. And those people have an extremely high dropout rate from higher education. And, and you know they can incur debt, they have a negative experience. Uh, so we have a long ways to go in education. There are some very strong points of light, like here in New York City, some of the charter schools are with even less resources than uh, schools at large doing a phenomenal job of educating kids. There are a lot of countries, particularly in Asia, who spending way less of their GDP on education are doing a great job educating their kids. And it's not just the top 20%. Their bottom 20% is pretty phenomenal in the case of China, South Korea, and Singapore. And so looking at what we've learned in charter schools in terms of building the culture, giving teachers feedback, uh, what is good teaching look like? Do we give teachers a chance to learn from each other about that interactive element that makes the subject seem relevant and important? There are uh, great teachers, but spreading those practices is, has been very, very tough. And so I'd say it's a, a top priority. And we've our foundation has that for our work in the United States. Education is, is the top priority, whereas outside the US, uh, we, we take on health. It's a tough problem because the institution of education are fairly resistant to change and people are, are not yet convinced by various approaches very easily, uh, but we need to keep at it. We're gonna you know, stay and even actually put even more money into trying to help, help create models. Okay, uh, up to number six. Hi. First, I want to thank Bill. I witnessed the role of your foundation in eliminating polio in India, and I'm really thankful for that. Uh, my, my question is uh, more on how to set the basic level of debate in any, any public sense. Like, uh, there are many trade-offs. How to explain uh, climate change policy for people who are losing, losing jobs in, in the coal sector? How do you balance uh, the current, current short-term economic goals with the long-term peaceful transition to the renewable sources of energy? No, it's a good question. It, the certain topics are so complicated, like climate change, that to really get a broad understanding is a bit difficult, and particularly when people take any of that complexity and try and, and create uncertainty about it. Uh, and, you know, for example, India's kind of paradigmatic in that they want to electrify for all sorts of good reasons, having to do with health and reading at night and uh, quality of life. And the question of should they delay electrification uh, for climate issues is, is going to be very difficult. The ideal is to innovate in such a way that they can go full speed ahead on electrification without emitting the CO2 that a, the natural path of them today, which is coal, is the way to, to go. And so we have a lot of cost reduction to do uh, because rich countries may be able to buy premium electricity. When you get to middle income or lower, that's just, just not gonna happen. And 
you know, democracy has us allocate these resources in terms of investing in the future and things like research uh, and investing in, in the present. And when you have a problem like the financial crisis, then you do get a little bit of more of short-term thinking. And I'm hopeful, I think it's better for the world and for the country if we can get back into uh, a little bit more of a, a focus on the long term. Uh, uh, we have some questions from Facebook. Uh, Warren, a, a central tenet of your investing is to invest for the long term. And this comes from Brian White, who says, how might Bill and Warren convince investors to think beyond short-term returns to encourage world-changing innovation? Well, I've spent my life trying to convince people on investing for the long term. And listen, if I knew how to double my money tomorrow, I'd probably invest for the short term too. <laughs> they, uh, I, I, uh, it's, much, it's much easier to invest for the long term if you're just talking pure investment, right. because you know what's going to, in my view, be very high probability what's going to happen 10 and 20 years from now in a major way. And I don't have the faintest idea what's going to happen tomorrow or, or next week. Uh, but you, when you get, if you're talking about societal, uh, it, it's very tough because politicians face elections either every two years or six years. And the way, the way uh, particularly congressional districts have been organized, primaries have become more and more important. And so it's very hard to have uh, politicians think of something that's wonderful for the country for 20 years, but will cost them the election two years from now. And that, that's a basic problem in a democracy, and it gets to be more of a problem as, as we get arraigned, we've arranged congressional districts so the primary dominates because a very limited number of people turn out and their motive tend to be on the extremes of both parties. So it, uh, it's not well, easy. Whether you're going to make an investment in a company or whether you're going to buy the company, what are the factors that you have to be that you're looking for? What I, test? I'm looking for durable competitive advantage. I'm looking for something that has a moat around it for a considerable period of time. And I'm looking for an, an honest and able management to run it because I don't know how to run it myself. And I'm looking for a, a purchase price that's not excessive. But it's better to pay a little too much for something that's a very good business uh, than it is to buy some bargain, uh, but really a company without much of a future. And I don't know, I don't have a ability to predict with a high, a high probability of success the future of most companies. So I'm looking for the exception. But the nice thing is, if there's thousands of companies out there, I really only have to be right on a couple. I mean, it, it, it's exactly the opposite of, of baseball, where you have called strikes. And the pitcher's trying to throw it to you at the worst part of the strike zone for you. And if he succeeds in getting into that corner three times and you don't swing your out. And, and investing, it's a no, it's a no called strike yeah. thing. So I can sit there all day and somebody can throw me one company after another. And finally, I get one in my sweet spot. Uh, both of you have chosen both wives and partners well. Um, Charlie Munger added what? To your oh, Charlie Munger changed my views. He refined them in a huge way in terms of looking for the quality companies and, and, and looking for the ability to make an investment that would work out well for five or 10 or 20 years as opposed to something that might, there might be one, I call it cigar butt investing, where there was one puff left in the cigar, but the cigar was free. So you picked up these disgusting looking things and got one puff out of them and went onto another one. And that worked okay, but it was small scale and it really doesn't build something satisfying. So, so he, 
he kept forcing me in the direction of saying, you know, is this a, really a business we want to own for forever? And, and uh, do we want to get associated? It's like a marriage. I mean, do you want to get associated with this person forever? And it's a great way to look at things. Uh, Bill, uh, your wife, Melinda, has added what? Well, she's... Uh, Mother and four children. <laughs> Three children. Uh, how much time do I have? Uh, you know, because she my, is your partner, and she was there in the philanthropy from day one. At Microsoft, I had two partners who were amazing. I had Paul right, Allen in right. the early days, and then Steve Ballmer's the company got bigger. And we would not have achieved anything what we did without those partnerships. Because, you know, when things are tough... When you're making big decisions, having somebody who's really in there with you, committed, uh, you know, for me, I, I couldn't have done without that. For the foundation, Melinda's an amazing partner. Uh, she thinks about the people issues better than I do. She, you know, knows when I get overexcited about the science. She can, uh, you know, make sure we're, we're being realistic about it. And it makes it fun. You know, we, last week uh, I went to Europe to... World Economic Forum, she went to Nigeria, and then this weekend we just sat and talked about, okay, what did we see? What does that say about the work we should do? Uh, and so, you know, I don't think I'd enjoy it without a partner, and particularly someone amazing like her. It's more fun with a partner. I mean, Charlie and I have had more fun working together than either one of us would have had individually, and we have never had an argument after working together for 58 years. You talk every day? Not anymore, because we know what the other guy's going to say. We just grunt. Uh, we, we talked it all out 50 years ago. <laughs> so if you see Charlie and, and he says, why haven't you called me? You'd say, well, I knew what you'd say anyway. Absolutely. No, there's no question about it. We still have a lot of fun together. <laughs> all right, right there. Well, let's see, number two. Hi. Hi, my name is Molly Zanger. I'm a student at Barnard College. Um, I guess what I'm basically wondering is what your main considerations are when you're choosing where to donate and what causes to donate to, and what the main challenges are that are associated with that. Yeah, well, I wholesaled it because I made a choice that I wanted to have. Well, originally, my first wife and I planned that I would pile it up and she would unpile it, but, uh, and, and uh, that was plan number one, but she, she died. Uh, in, in 2004, and then I had the problem of, of figuring out the best way to distribute what would turn out to be a lot of money. And I wanted, I wanted some people who had similar values and similar objectives to what I had, but I also wanted people who would pour in intelligence and energy, and in the case of Bill and Melinda, a lot of their own funds, would work at it full time but who really saw society as I saw it, which was that every life is of equal value. And, and that mm. if you start with that, and then you figure what you might be good at changing, whether it's in medicine or education or early learning or whatever it may be, uh, you know, that was my answer was the, the wholesale. Uh, and uh, I mean, retail philanthropy would drive me crazy, <laughs> but wholesale philanthropy I really like. <laughs> Bill? Yeah, for our work at the foundation, the belief in innovation, which uh, both Melinda and I saw at Microsoft, our question was, okay, how do we bring that kind of innovation to help the world's poorest? And we learned that coming up with new vaccines, that although you can pay a lot to have them created, the marginal cost comes down to less than a dollar. So great, getting a new vaccine for the main cause of diarrhea or, or pneumonia uh, 
that can be a phenomenal thing. So you're looking for these super nonlinear dramatic things because as a you know per poor person or compared to government funding, philanthropy is actually quite small. And yet funding vaccine projects, the government isn't as good as that as a uh, philanthropist who assembles a team and over time is learning how to do that very well. And we had models in you know, Rockefeller Foundation was a phenomenal foundation. The Green Revolution is just one of many things that they did which raised agricultural productivity and saved, avoided hundreds of millions uh, starving. And so studying the other foundations that have taken these big breakthroughs uh, and created a model out of those, that was very informative to, the, to what we've gone after. What's the most important lesson you've learned, though, about making investments from the foundation today? that you learned along the way? Well, I think uh, when we started out, I thought that just coming up with a new vaccine or drug alone would be enough and that the world would then take that and get it out to all the children of the world. Uh, you know, partly through field visits I did, that Melinda did, looking at the statistics. That delivery system doesn't get out to a lot of the kids. and so. Get, having to figure out how people were hired or how that was funded and measured, this what's called primary health care, uh, we were drawn into that out of necessity. It didn't fit the normal sort of in the lab, you know, come up with this great concoction. And, uh, and yet, in order to achieve our goals, we needed to, to think about those delivery pieces. In fact, sometimes the state of the product uh, actually had to be simpler in some ways in order to get through that very limited delivery capacity. And now we're getting to 86% of the world's children with vaccines. It was uh, about 70% when we got started. So that's a good increase. We still have 14% have to go. Bill right. and Melinda have amazing uh, convening and persuasive powers as well. So, I mean, they, they bring something far more to it than just money. Uh, I mean, they, they work incredibly hard, as do my three children and their foundations, but they work incredibly hard at getting governments involved in vaccines or whatever it may take. And that, that, that just is, you know, it, it's, it's an extra dimension that I, I think very few uh, people have in the field. Yeah, I mean, it's a hands-on hand uh, well, travel to experience. When Melinda is in Africa and she's holding a little baby, I mean, she is actually thinking, you know, this kid needs to be vaccinated, has a decent chance in education and all that. I feel the same way about the kid, but what I really think is, is he going to pee on me? You know, can I hand him something? <laughs> so, I, you know, there's just a difference in that human touch that makes a big difference. I'm halfway in between. <laughs> I think he's closer to me, actually. <laughs> number one, number three, and number four. First one, then three, then four. Hi, I'm Malvika Goswami at the Columbia Business School. If the current government were to ask for your advice on immigration or healthcare reform, what would you recommend to them? Morning. Well, on, on immigration, yes. the first, well, immigration, I mean, this country is built on it. I, I always say to people that are anti-immigration, you know, let's put it in retroactively. <laughs> you know, everybody leaves. It's, uh, this, <laughs> this, this country, if you think about it, Bill's heard this before from me, but we are sitting here in part because of two Jewish immigrants who in 1939 in August signed the most important letter perhaps in the history of the United States. And you can, you can go to the internet 
and go to surge. Bing. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> <Good> <laughs> and, <laughs> and just type in Einstein, Roosevelt, 1939. Leo Zillard and Albert Einstein, two immigrants, came here. They both, they came directly from Germany. Zillard came from Hungary before that. And they told President Roosevelt that the Germans were likely to develop an atom bomb, which was likely to work. It's less than a full page, and we better get to work on something fast. And that the Manhattan Project came out of that. And if it hadn't been for those two immigrants, you know, who knows whether we'd be sitting in this room. Immigration? I'm going to let him handle yeah, it. No, but I mean, I was, you know, but you, I mean, no, you no. knew Andy Grove. You know, I mean, just, yeah, just, right. just go up and down exactly. the line. I mean, right. It's this country has been built has been on blessed the, exactly. by, by immigrants. And you can take them from any country you want. And they've, they've come here and they've found something that unleashed the potential that the place where they left did not. And, mm -hmm. and, and we're the product of it. Uh, let me, the question also was about health care. I mean, what can you tell us about health care that you think is important in terms of the consideration of what might happen? I mean, if you were building a health care plan for America, what would be the elements that you would want to include? Well, there's no doubt that in order to provide decent health care, the percentage of GDP devoted to it is going to go up over time. It's already very high. And yes, there's some efficiencies to be gained uh, in that you know, 18 percent uh, or so number. But as society ages, as we come up with new things like joint replacement, organ transplant, which are going to create lots of human benefits, we're going to have to have more resources overall, including more government resources for health care. And so it's a tough problem because you have both access problems today and you have cost problems right. today. And, you know, I, whenever I look at a problem, I have this one uh, simple lens, which is oh, innovation should help here. But in this case, innovation, while it will provide breakthrough uh, drugs that will save costs, like if you can cure Alzheimer's, which we certainly haven't done yet, that will save on huge long-term care costs. So we have these chronic diseases that we've made less progress on uh, than, than some of the others. And you know, the market mechanism to get pharma to go after those things and the basic research U.S. funds, I am quite optimistic that we'll have some advances. But they'll also give us some very expensive things that will mean we're, we're spending more money against it. And I do hope, you know, that at some point that we really are calling on the best minds to look at the incentives for the breakthroughs, the most efficient uh, system we have here, I think there's a lot of unhappiness in the country now uh, stems from the, the fact that the healthcare system isn't delivering, and yet, uh, you know, people are saying less government, more government. Right, right. Uh, you know, I don't think they're being given the, the depth of education about why it's so tough that over time will help them uh, uh, vote yeah, for the, 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 the right depth, solution. The depth of explanation. Uh, let, me, let me go, I'll go to Facebook in just a moment, but uh, where was I? I promised three, four, and six. Uh, three is there, and six is up there. So go three, six, and then we'll go to Facebook. Hi, my name is Josh Schaefer, and I'm a dental resident at Columbia. My question is, 
for future doctors and dentists of America, what, what advice do you have in giving about having a proper balance of providing that healthcare, but also mastering the concepts of business and economics? Well, Atul Gawande is, yeah. you know, an incredible yeah, author. Exactly. He, in the current issue of The New Yorker, has a, uh, the latest in uh, uh, wonderful articles about the healthcare system. And he's talking about the people who do sort of heroic surgery, like himself, are paid twice as much as the, the people who are on an ongoing basis in a great incremental way learning about the patient and, and seeing what works for them. And he, it's a calling cry to say, hey, th that part of the system needs to be run better, needs, needs more resources. Uh, and you know, so I think it's brilliant that he's saying that and it also corresponds to what, uh, what is working in, in some other countries. Okay. Uh, six. So you both have invested a great deal of money abroad, but there is a prevailing belief by some that there are pressing issues in America, there are poor people here, there are sick people here, and we should deal with that first before even tackling anything abroad. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, my own personal thought is that every life is of equal value. And uh, in many ways, In many ways, if you have a limited number of dollars, you actually can do more for more people outside the United States. We do have greater resources here for our 320 million people than exists around the world for seven plus billion people. So if, if you, you can improve the lot of more people by intelligently spending a billion dollars or any other number uh, in other areas of the world actually than here. And I get, uh, you know, I, coming from Omaha and having the money, I have people who can say, well, why not spend it all in Omaha? You know, you grew up here and Omaha's done all kinds of things for you. And I absolutely acknowledge that. But in the end, if I've got X dollars to spend, I can make life better for more people if I can have it intelligently allocated in other parts of the world, actually, than the United States. And that draws a fair amount of criticism, but, you know, I, I live with it because I, that's just what I believe. All lives have equal value is really the driving force Absolutely. behind I mean, the I, Foundation. I, I'm an accident. I, I, right. I won the ovarian lottery when I was born in the United States in 1930. It was 40 to 1 against me. I was male. That Now it's 80 to 1 against being a male in the United States in 1930. I was just plain lucky. My life had been far different. Bill always said if I had been born a long time ago, I'd have been some animal's lunch because I can't run fast and I can't climb trees and everything. Else. And I'd be saying, I allocate capital, I allocate capital. You know? It wouldn't work. And, you know, I was lucky. But 79 out of the 80 weren't as lucky as I was at that time. And, Bill. Go ahead, Bill. In terms of the helping people in other countries, the foreign aid budget of the U.S. is... is 0.8% of the budget. And there will be, in, in the years ahead, a discussion about, is that worth doing? It saves lives for typically about $1,000 of life saved. And in terms of stability and countries uh, eventually being self-sufficient to be part of the world economy, there are some, some huge benefits right. to that. So if we were talking about, should we spend 20 or 30% overseas, Okay, you know, that would be a very interesting discussion. But what we're trying to preserve uh, is something that's gotten smarter and smarter all the time, has proven benefits, 
all of which are things that our foundation co-invests invests in the, the same things, like like the polio thing is is 0.8%. So I'm hopeful that in a big world that uh, can remain a priority. All right, let me go to another Facebook question. This is from uh, uh, Nadia Akwal says, how might Bill and Warren encourage innovation, particularly among teens and young adults? How do you encourage innovation? Well, I think you have a market system that provides rewards for it. Yeah, that's one of them. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we haven't. I mean, we, we, we have an incubator for innovation in the United States. And, you know, Bill can drop out of school. <laughs> Andy Grove can come from Hungary. And, right. oh, I mean, this, it, it just welcomes it. And thank God. I mean, that's why we have the kind of prosperity that we have. I mean, the question of how it gets divided is a secondary question, and that does not get solved as well by the market system. But, but our system is just designed for it, and look at what has happened. All right, number one. Also, I want to make sure we get the people in the back, so we only have five minutes left. So there's a couple of hands up in the back, so please recognize it. Hi, uh, my name is Sahir. Uh, I'm a senior in the engineering school. Uh, as men of such great influence, uh, I'm curious, and we touched a little bit about this in the last question, but how you deal with reconciling your convictions with maybe what is believed by the public, maybe even a majority, considering that you have the wealth and power and fame to make such great things happen. Either. Well, I don't see, you know, the, the convictions I have, uh, you know, I love sharing them and talking uh, to people and understanding, you know, where people disagree. Uh, you know, I can be overly science-centric about things. I, uh, you know, there's all sorts of causes that are super important that our foundation, because we have limited resources, we don't get to go and do. There's, there's lots of diseases. Uh, there's aspects of education. You know, part of the strength of philanthropy is its diversity. And, and, and so just by sharing the fact that uh, it's fun, it, it really can have measurable impact. I hope that sets an example for all of philanthropy. I don't happen to believe that, you know, my voice should be that much louder than other people. Uh, you know, and so, you know, some of these big political donations, you know, at least, uh, you know, I and I think Warren as well, you know, we've chosen not to have that be a, a, a huge way that, you know, we're spending our money. That's a personal choice. Uh, you know, the money's, being saved for, not for the megaphone, but for the, the, mm -hmm. the work of the foundation. Yeah, we get a podium of a certain sort, you know, and, but people do not, uh, with a partner like Charlie Munger, you don't have to worry about my views being accepted automatically. They <laughs> <laughs> point out the shortcomings. And the, the influence of money in politics, I really think, is, is bad news for this country. I think Citizens United was a terrible decision. decision. And, and uh, uh, the idea that somebody can pour millions and millions of dollars into a campaign, and in certain cases it not even be identified, I, I think really kind of goes counter to the kind of America I believe in. The two of you created, along with Melinda and others, created the Giving Pledge. Uh, how's that going? Going terrific, Bill can tell you about it. <laughs> it really is going terrific. Yeah, philanthropy is kind of a lonely thing. tell them thing. what it is exactly. Yeah, okay, this is, uh, you know, we love philanthropy of all types, uh, and Part of the strength of American philanthropy is actually people with very little who uh, are incredibly generous. Here, though, we said for the people who are 
are super lucky, uh, have over a billion dollars. We want a group who are working together, who are committed to give the majority of their wealth away, to learn from each other what's worked, what hasn't worked, uh, how do you involve your kids, uh, how do you hire staff, and they'll find areas they're working on together and cooperate, but we're not pulling any money. And we thought we'd get you know, 20, 25 people together, and in fact now uh, we're at 156. So uh, it is a wonderful yearly event. I've made some great people. I do think that the quantity and quality has gone up because we're getting together. We'll never be able to measure that in a direct way. And uh, we're making special efforts in China and India because now we have a lot of wealth there that wasn't there before. And uh, in their own way, I think they, by having a strong philanthropic sector, that will help those countries and, and therefore help the world. What's interesting now, Bill and I are having dinner actually with the group tonight, for example, but if you go back 100 or 150 years, People got wealthy by making some money from the first oil refinery or steel mill and building another one, and Henry Ford would build a plant to build cars, and then they, it would be from actually from retained earnings, which eventually turned into cash. Now you can get rich very young just by having an idea, right. and you can get that idea monetized and capitalized in a way that you cannot believe. So we are particularly interested in getting younger people interested in philanthropy because they, there will be huge, there are huge fortunes by people that are now in their 20s and 30s. And just think of what those, the potential for that group. And so this thing has worked out way, way better, including getting younger people uh, to join us. Number six. Hello, my name is Christina Nunez. I'm a fellow dental student to Josh. Thank you for speaking with us today. Um, I'm curious about your insight related to relationships. I'm personally given a desire to honor myself and respect other individuals, have found it difficult throughout life to discern um, which relationships to really foster and invest in and accept challenges from and which to kind of forego and abandon because they're more harmful than helpful. Um, so, are there any major life lessons that you two have learned through your personal experiences? Well, it's a very important question, and the more <clears throat> you will move in the direction of the people that you associate with. So, I, it's important to associate with people that are better than yourself. And actually, the most important decision many of you make—not all of you—will be the spouse you choose. Right. And uh, you really you want to associate with people who are the kind of person you'd like to be. You'll, you'll move in that direction, and the most important person by far in that respect is your spouse. I, I can't overemphasize how important that is, and you're right. The, the friends you have, uh, they will form you as you go through life, and uh, uh, make some good friends, keep them for the rest of your life, but have them be people that you admire as well as like. <laughs> Bill, you'd add to that? Yeah, some friends do bring out the best in you. Uh, and, and so those, it's good to invest in those friendships. Uh, and, you know, some friends challenge you uh, about things you're doing. Uh, and that, you know, that level of intimacy is great. I wouldn't say that I'm, you know, I was so obsessed with work. I didn't invest, I'd say, in my 20s and 30s as much as I should have. It's really through Melinda and seeing you know other people. I realized, okay, that is uh, you know it's really worth the investment to have those people as 
uh, you're always there to help them and, and vice versa. So we started with friendship and, and we end with a question of friendship. Uh, I want to thank, first of all, all of you in this audience for coming here at Columbia University to the Facebook audience, coming here to uh, Columbia where we have faculty and students from all of the disciplines at Columbia. Uh, and they have participated. Most of all, uh, we want to thank uh, this afternoon, as we said, and have a conversation with Warren Buffett and Bill Gates. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.